Welcome to Nocturnal Emotions, everybody. I am your host, Harmar Superstar, taking you on a flight of fancy into the nighttime where the feeling is so goddamn right. Normally, I have conversations with people that I admire, uh, people that interest me, and uh, I hope they interest you too. That's why you keep coming back. But uh, this week, I'm changing it up a little bit because I've been traveling around so goddamn much, I haven't had time to line up any interviews get into uh, a, you know a conversation in the masturbatorium or anywhere else for that matter so uh, I've decided to start a series where I, I read uh, I, I'm gonna do a book on tape for you guys and uh, the one that I'm gonna start I'm gonna do parts of them uh, the one that I want to start with is uh, uh, LL Cool J's 1998 autobiography I make my own rules uh, and I'm just gonna you know I'm just cold reading it for you guys uh, and I'm gonna do it in parts. So throughout the next however many months when I don't have somebody in and I, I can't stress out about it because I've got other real jobs to do besides being a podcaster, guys, I'm going to read you some passages from this book. I'm going to read them in, uh, in series in the, way, in the way that it's written. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what you get this week. You get uh, the beginning chapters of LL Cool J's life, and uh, I hope you enjoy that's what's going on. But before we get into that, uh, I just wanted to let you know what's going down with me this week. I'm just uh, just right now getting back from Italy. Uh, the wedding of my friends, Brian and Allie Holland. Uh, it was so fun. We were in Tuscany. I ate so much food. We just lapped it up. We, we hung out in the pool all day. We made a new version of a game called Ball that Denver Dally and I uh, love to play. Um, and we really got really good at it uh, in the pool. It just involves a beach ball and never hitting the water. Um, and we've probably all played this game since we were children. But we got up to 200, which I think is pretty fucking good, guys. And so uh, I've got a whole new lease on life. <laughs> and uh, other than that, I mean, just uh, so many weddings, so much traveling. Uh, it's crazy. It's crazy to think that as I record this, I literally just got off the airplane like an hour ago. And I'm leaving again tomorrow to go on tour of the West Coast. With the yeah, yeah, yes, so hopefully I'll see you there, and I'll give you those dates at the end of this here episode. Um, yeah, man. Uh, and I want to give a big shout-out to my friend Erica Reitz, who actually gave me this book. Old friend of mine. We've known each other since elementary school uh, in Owatonna, Minnesota, um, and I saw her in L.A. She came to the Smash Mouth show with us that you may have seen photos of, uh, and it, uh, she brought me this book. So this is what where the inspiration came from to read I Make My Own Rules by LL Cool J. Um, yeah, uh, I think it's going to be good. I'm excited. I'm excited to learn and read about LL Cool J with you guys. So without further ado, here is me reading you I Make My Own Rules, the autobiography of LL Cool J with Karen Hunter. Thank you. Introduction, know what I'm saying. It's our first time together and I'm feeling kind of horny. Conventional ways of making love kind of bore me. A sea of women line the stage, screaming. I'm standing close to the edge, just close enough to make them think that they can touch me. Sweat is pouring off my naked chest and I'm feeling this moment. It's the Apollo Theater in Harlem, the second show of a one-night headliner there for me. I've been doing performances like this for about 14 years and it never gets tired. The look on those faces at the stage, 
the wild hysteria, and of course, the screams keep me going. I grab a bottle of spring water, open it, and pour it over my head, and they really go wild. Showtime. Know what I'm saying? On stage, I'm LL Cool J. Most people know me from my rap records and my weekly television show, In the House. I have six platinum albums, quite a few movies, and a pair of Grammys sitting on my grandmother's living room table. I've got clothing endorsements, a charity camp for kids, even a Coke commercial. LL Cool J stands for Ladies Love Cool James, and besides the 2,000-plus baseball caps that I alternate from day to day, that's the me most people see. But I'm a lot more than an entertainment who wears hats and rolls up his pants leg. I'm a father with three beautiful children. I'm a husband with a wonderful wife. I'm a healing victim of abuse who has made many mistakes along the way. My real name is James Todd Smith, and in real life, I am a man. From Hollis to Hollywood, but is it good? I started writing this book for myself as therapy, an emotional and spiritual cleansing. There were issues in my life that I had never really dealt with, pain that stayed hidden in seemingly unreachable parts of my mind. I had to dig deep into my psyche and find myself, find the pain, find the suffering, find the strength, find the weakness so that I could grow up, become a man, and do right by my family. This book became my means to keep it real with myself, to face the person I was becoming by dealing with the person that I once was. But as I started writing opening old wounds and seeing just how vulnerable I really was, I realized that this book is just about me. This book is about thousands, no, millions of people, young and old, black and white, Asian and Latino, who have experienced some of the same things I have. The pain, the suffering, the addiction. I realized that my experiences, while powerful to me, were not so, so unique in the grand scheme of things. There are kids today going through the abuse that I experienced. Men and women today who feel insecure are being ripped off and discriminated against. Parents today who are raising children who are in trouble. This book is for them, the less fortunate. Those who weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouths but want their children to be born with one. This book is to let them know that they are not alone. This book is for racist people who look at other human beings as subhuman animals that exist for the sole purpose of being the labor force and refuse to see the connection. It's for children who feel unwanted, for young people who are confused and struggling to come to grips with the reality that they face every day. Violence, crime, murder, AIDS, teenage pregnancy, alcohol abuse, drugs. This book is for the hip-hop community which for so long has been misunderstood. It's for rappers to see that where they're at and where they can be. I also want people to gain a better understanding of rap and not look at it as one-dimensional. Not all rappers are negative. Not all criminals. Just because you see one young man just being hustled into a police car, bent over in handcuffs and wearing baggy jeans and a baseball cap, that doesn't mean that everyone who looks remotely similar to him or is culturally connected to him deserves to be hustled in that, into that police car too, you know? This book is for the downtrodden, the poor, 
the orphans, those who are incarcerated when they really should be educated. It's also for America's youth, one of our most valuable resources, but one that is not always fully explored. This book is about being African-American in the United States, which is a strange paradox. We're of African descent, but don't learn enough about what Africa is. And because of certain racist sectors, we're not always 100% accepted as Americans. Our people have been force-fed an American culture, taught to hate themselves. But inside, African culture is brewing because it's never been fully realized. Have you ever seen a black kid get on an elevator making music with his mouth and the white people start looking at him like he's crazy, wondering why he can't keep still? He doesn't have a Walkman or a radio. He's just moving to a beat inside his soul. That's the same drum the slave owners tried to abolish back in the 18th century. It hasn't gone away. It's just been transformed. It's the same vibe. Other groups in America, the Italians, the Jews, the Asians, the Irish, know where they come from and what their cultures are about. And it makes it easier for them to embrace America on their own terms. It's not an either-or situation. Too many black people are struggling to fit an American key into an American lock, African style. It just doesn't fit sometimes. We've got to learn to embrace our culture before we can be confident and accepted as Americans and make that key fit. Not all African history and culture is great. Africans participated in the slave trade, but a lot of it is great. And we have to be real about that, too. I have a constant reminder, a tattoo that stretches the length of my left calf. I started rolling up that pants leg as a fashion move, but now I do it as a reminder to stay spiritually grounded. The tattoo is seven symbols from Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. <laughs> and every day I look at them. They keep me grounded and remind me of where I come from, the essence of my existence. The top symbol stands for the presence of God and protection. The one under that means bravery and fearlessness. The third one represents creativity, wisdom, and the complexities of life. There's a heart in the middle that's for love, goodwill, faith, and patience. The next one means parental discipline tempered with patience and kindness. The one below that means strength and humility. And the last one symbolizes faith and determination. These are attributes that I would advise my child, any person, to try to attain. This book has been hard for me to write. I know a few critics will try to take advantage of my honesty, which is probably why honesty and celebrity don't always go hand in hand. Even my advisor suggested that I leave certain things out, but I feel that if sacrificing my privacy can provide an example that will help others achieve their goals, it'll be worth it. So I'm writing this book for understanding. I write this book for inspiration, to show that not every child who's abused has to be a negative statistic. I write this book for anyone who thinks they can't make it, to show them they can. Lastly, I write this book for my family. I want my children and my children's children to know that I did a lot of things, some good, some bad. I wasn't perfect, but I tried to make a difference. I was inspired by King Solomon of the Old Testament. God asked him, what is it that you want? I'll give you anything that you want. And Solomon replied, he replied, Wisdom. All he wanted was wisdom. 
the ability to discern right from wrong. God ended up giving Solomon all of the wealth and riches in the world. No king was as rich before him and no king will be as rich after him. At the same time, Solomon's weakness was women. Because of his weakness for women, he got turned around, began praying to the wrong gods, worshiping idols and losing, losing everything. The lesson for me from that is that I really have to stay focused and remember what took place in order for me to be where I am today. In other words, I have to always remember where I came from, keep my pact with God. Here comes a part of the book called Genesis. This week's episode is brought to you once again by Earthquaker Devices. Uh, friends of mine from Kent, Ohio, who are uh, on the international scene as far as, uh, you know, making uh, compression, distortion, delay, fuzz, modulation, octave, overdrive to run your guitar through or sing through, just to get weird to in general. They make quality devices, quality pedals for you to rock out with. And uh, now, if you use the offer code NOCTURNAL, when you check out on their website at EarthquakerDevices.com, uh, you get 15% off. Not just 10, but 15% off your order. And uh, trust me, they make some amazing, amazing pedals that you want to check out. So, do yourself a favor. Play guitar in your bedroom. And play it through an Earthquaker device or two. EarthquakerDevices.com backslash nocturnal for 15% off support them support my friends support some people that are making great things possible booyah earthquaker devices back to the show boom the cradle it took four hours of labor sweating and pacing four hours of straining thinking and writing i put on the ojs and went to the bathroom I put on a Grandmaster Flash 12-inch and lay down on the floor. I put on the Furious 5 and looked out the window. I was in North Babylon, Long Island, in the living room of my mother's house alone and making what turned out to be one of the biggest decisions of my life. Whether or not to change my rap name from J-Ski to Cool J. Around this time, it seemed like every rapper had a ski on the end of his name. There was Lovebug Starsky. Busy B. Starsky, Mike Ski, and a whole bunch of assorted skis. I wanted to be different. Jay Ski just wasn't getting it. But I was feeling cool, Jay. To me, cool would never be played out. It seems like cool has been around since the beginning of time. Each generation uses cool, and it's still, well, cool. So, after going through this long process, I gave birth to cool, Jay. I spent all night long going through my school notebooks, small suitcase full of scraps of papers that I'd written raps on. Every place I'd written J-Ski, I erased it and wrote Cool J. To me, that was making it final, like getting married. I'd made that kind of a commitment to Cool J. I couldn't wait to go chill up on Merrick Boulevard with my homeboys and try out my new tag. The first person I told about it was my man Playboy Mikey D, who I used to write rhymes with. I like that Cool J, he said, but you need something in front of it, something like Playboy. How about Ladies Love? 
I looked at him and started smiling. Yeah, ladies love Cool J. It was working. I kept letting it roll off my tongue. Ladies love Cool J. Ladies love Cool J. I like the feel of it. I also thought it was not a paradox because the ladies were definitely not feeling me then. I was 14 and I was either a pain in the ass to girls or simply didn't exist. The ladies were hating Jayski, but I figured if I turned it all around, maybe the ladies would love Cool J. It took two days of labor and love, but in 1982, somewhere between Long Island and Queens, LL Cool J was born. Physically, I came into being 14 years earlier as James Todd Smith. It was right around Christmas, 1967, about 2 in the morning on a Saturday. The brand new Buick 225 was swerving down Pioneer Drive, two blocks from the Southern State Parkway in Bayshore, Long Island. My father, James Smith, was driving. A chocolate brown man with thick muscles and coarse hair slicked back with conchaline. He was cursing at my mother, Andrea. They had been at a party where he'd accused her of flirting with another man. She was looking good that day in a light green satin dress with a lace collar. Her dark hair hung off her shoulders and her honey-colored face was made up to perfection. It got so bad at the party that my mother actually picked up a pair of sewing scissors and tried to stab him. So they had to leave. But they fought on the way to the car and continued to battle as my father drove off. What the hell were you looking at him for, he growled. Jimmy, what are you talking about? Stop talking crazy. Who you calling crazy? He started slapping her up, leaving more than one imprint of his hand on her face. She kept swearing at him, but by now she was crying. He kept cursing at her, calling her all kinds of things, things a real man shouldn't call his wife. The brown Buick began to swerve as it approached the off-ramp of the southern state. When my mother opened the door, the car was going about 30 miles per hour. I'm getting out of here, she said, hoping he would come to his senses. Well, get out then, my father said, swinging at my mother again with one hand and trying to steer with the other. She ended up on the highway, cold, scraped up and dirty in her new green dress. Oh, yeah, she was also nine months pregnant with me. I was born at 8.46 p.m. January 14, 1968 at Southside Hospital in Bayshore. I weighed seven pounds, four ounces, and my right arm was paralyzed. Maybe it was from my mother rolling out of the car while she was pregnant. Maybe it was from the forceps, forceps the doctors used to pull me out of her womb. Maybe it was just one of those things. One thing's for sure. The nerves in my right arm, they were damaged. By the time I came home from the hospital, my mother had forgiven my father again. He somehow convinced her that he didn't mean to go off on her, that he would never go ill on her again. He said he wanted us to be a family, but like most of his promises, that frame of mind didn't last long. He even used my bad arm as an excuse to yell at my mother. You can't even have a healthy baby, Angie, he would say. Look at him. Maybe if you weren't so stupid, he'd be okay. My mother absorbed this. But she never paid much attention. She knew she didn't deserve it. She loved me. She used to lotion me down every night until I looked like a little greased pig. And when she put me to bed, she would dress me in a onesie and pin my sleeve to the mattress so 
Whenever I tried to move, I'd be forced to exercise my bad arm. After a few months, I waved my arm for the first time, and within a year, it had gotten so strong it was almost perfect, just the way my life appeared from the outside. After I was born, we lived in a tiny house in Brentwood, Long Island. Of course, I don't remember it, but my mother told me it had a small living room that you entered as soon as you came in the front door. There was a heating grate in the floor of the entryway where she would dry clothes by hanging them over a chair. Two bedrooms, one for my parents and one for me, were right off the living room. It was all on one level and looked like a little dollhouse. In less than a year, like the Jeffersons, we were moving on up to a bigger house in Bayshore. My father had gotten a loan through the Veterans Administration, and he got a great deal on a high ranch. This is the house I remember. It had a big yard in the front and one in the back. There were always people over, family mostly. Music was a big part of our house, too. My father used to write songs, and he played the keyboard. He even had a record label at one time. He always wanted to be a musician. My mother loved listening to music. She used to play her eight-track tapes and her 78s, the OJs, the main ingredient, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, the Whispers. We always had a nice stereo system. There was a barbecue pit where every spring and summer my father would cook hot dogs, quarter-pound hamburgers, chicken and ribs, and corn wrapped in aluminum foil. Every 4th of July, my father and his friends would buy a whole pig, soak and clean it in our bathtub, ain't that nasty, and cook it right there in the big old pit out back. Back then, women wore midriffs and hot pants. The fellas had shirts with huge lapels. One summer, I taught myself how to ride a bike on the street outside our house. I was just a little kid. My parents bought me a bike that they didn't expect me to ride until I got older, but I surprised them. The bike was blue and silver and almost as big as I was. And even though it didn't have training wheels, I would roll it outside in front of our house every day and try to ride it. My mother would crack up as she sat on the front porch with her friends, watching me fall all over the place trying to ride this big old bike. By the end of the summer, though, I was riding it. I guess I was always determined to do things no one thought I could. Later, I even taught myself how to juggle. To this day, I can still do it. That same year, my father bought me a puppy that I called Pup. I didn't go any place without him. He's one of those mixed-breed mutts, a little guy with short brown hair with a patch of white and real cute. Pup was my true friend and the first thing I had that I felt belonged to me. Everywhere I went, Pup was right behind me wagging his tail, looking up at me. I'd, I'd put his little, uh, his little leash on him, take him for a walk with my mother whenever I could. One day while we were going out to play, he fell through a missing floorboard on the porch. His leash got stuck on a nail and he started making this horrible squeal. I ran down under the house to try to save him, but by the time I could get to him, he had choked to death. I cried for days. My father buried him in the backyard, one of the few nice things he ever did for me. From the outside, we were an all-American family with the house in Long Island, dog, cute little kid, but inside that house was pure hell because my father was a straight-up Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. To almost everyone around him, he was Mr. Responsible, family man who was taking care of business. He and my mother were the perfect couple. They partied, went out, and entertained. But my grandfather wasn't fooled. He hated my father, and he hated the way he treated my mother, his only daughter, his only child. Pops would show up at my grandparents' house looking like a pimp. 
hat cocked to the side, a cigarette hanging out the corner of his mouth, and he always had something smarter, ignorant to say. My parents met in 1966 at Pilgrim Street Hospital, where they were both nurses' assistants. My pops had just gotten out of the Navy. My mother was studying to become a nurse. My mother thought my father was like one of those romantic guys she used to read about or dream up listening to her Marvin Gaye records. At the time, my pops was a sharp dresser. He always seemed to have a pocket full of money. He was always working or starting a business. He always used to have a nice car. That year was a 65 Mustang. Mustang Sally was the popular song, and my father loved to sing that song and drive his car. They got married a year later. There was no ceremony, no bridesmaids, no ring bearers, no flowers, no nothing. They found some minister on straight path and Wyandanch to perform the marriage. My father wore a pair of blue slacks and a shirt with big lapels. My mother had on a black skirt and a pink sweater like they were going to dinner or the movies or something. My father left the hospital to take a job driving a truck, which paid twice as much. But the extra money and all the entertaining they did didn't make them happy. The fighting between them was off the hook. Every night was another round. They would fight over the dumbest things. One time my pops wanted to get a loan to buy a truck and moms didn't think it was a good idea, so he choked her for not co-signing his plan. It was like he couldn't discuss his feelings and he had to get violent. And there I am, right in the middle. I hated my life sometimes. Being an only child made it harder because I was all alone. Sometimes I would sit in my room and drift off into la-la land, staring at the colors in the wall, the patterns in the hardwood floors. I'd pretend I was somewhere else, in a different family with lots of brothers and sisters. I would make up an entirely new life. When my parents fought and cursed each other, there was a lot of emptiness and loneliness. There was one time when my... <laughs> Sorry, excuse me, guys. There was one time when my parents left me at home by myself, when I was about four years old, I remember waking up in what seemed to be the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, call for my mother for a drink of water. No one answered. I ran from room to room in the big house, dark, complete terror. After realizing I was home by myself, I lay in my mother and father's bed and cried, staring into the closet, thinking that the clothes in the dark were shapes moving or monsters or something. After a while, my mom just got fed up with my father. She got tired of embarrassing her, hitting her in front of her friends, cursing her out. So she decided to move back home with my grandparents, who had just bought a house in St. Albans, Queens. The day we left was kind of weird. My pops was standing calmly at the top of the stairs as we headed for the front door. I remember looking up at him and seeing a tear in his eye. Maybe somewhere, I thought, underneath the anger, the violence, and the evilness, was a man who really loved us in his own way. If he did, he had a funny way of showing it. Hello, Earwolf fans. This is Harmar Superstar of Nocturnal Emotions, here to let you know about my new album, Bye Bye 17. What you're listening to right now is the first single, Lady You Shot Me, and the rest of the album is full of sweet, saccharine soul, just as this. Cult Records will be releasing the album on April 23rd in the U.S. and May 6th in the U.K. and Japan. So get ready, look out for it. Pre-order it now on iTunes for only $4.99, a limited time offer. You won't regret it. 
Go to harmarsuperstar.com for tour dates and cultrecords.com for more information on this glorious record. Bye Bye 17 by Harmar Superstar. You will love it. And I'm out. Back to the show. Blood. It was the sound of my mother's moans that I remember waking me up. I was four years old and I was asleep in the back room that I shared with my mother and my grandparents' house. But Those moans, they ripped right through me. In the kitchen, there was blood everywhere. It was splattered on the refrigerator, on the floor, on the walls, deep, dark red all over the place. There were bullet holes in the wall and in the refrigerator. I had no idea what was happening. I don't even remember hearing the gunshots. I guess I slept through them, but the moans woke me up. My grandfather, who was on the floor in the dining room holding his stomach, yelled for me to get back, and I guess I did. As he didn't know if my father was finished shooting. And at my height, the next shot that came through the side door might have hit me in the head. We moved to St. Albans in 1972. My grandparents' house sat on Ilian Avenue, not far from Farmer's Boulevard. It had trees and nice homes, almost like the neighborhood where I lived in Long Island, except a lot more urban. It was a different vibe. I spent most summers during my childhood here. Every Saturday during the summer months, people would be out mowing their lawns and planting flowers. Kids would be running around playing football and skelly. Girls would be jumping double dutch, and I loved it. It felt like home. That was the only place in the world where I felt safe and truly loved. To this day, when I come back to New York, I stay with my grandmother in that same house on the corner. When I got older, I moved from the front room to my own room in the basement. My grandfather had fixed it up into a nice bedroom for me. But you know me. I added my own touches. Posters of Bruce Lee and later Run DMC and Jet Magazine's Beauty of the Week. I had sheets up for privacy like walls because the washer and dryer were also downstairs. My man Al Monday airbrushed graffiti on one concrete wall. The skyline of New York and my name in lights. The background was great, like dust, and it's still there. Even though I, ha I have since had the basement completely remodeled with marble floors, a bar, and a jacuzzi in the bathroom, I kept that wall of graffiti. That room, that house was where I created my hottest joints, and still do. I still get that feeling, that creative rush in that house. But it wasn't the house as much as the love that came from that house that made it into a home. My grandparents were real people. My grandfather was more of a father to me than my real one. Even before we moved, I had to visit them a lot. Me and my grandfather would watch old movies and wrestling every weekend. Gorgeous George was our favorite. He was the man. My granddad used to say, That wrestling stuff ain't real, but every weekend we'd be there watching it. My grandfather, Eugene Griffith, was 5'7", light brown, Brown, curly hair. His parents were from Barbados, where they lived until they settled in the Bronx in the 1930s, and eventually in Corona, Queens. My great-grandfather was black as coal and owned a medallion cab and several buildings in Corona. My grandfather was just as hardworking in his job as the post office and as custodian for the city school system. They had my mother, their only child, in the 1940s and moved from Long Island back to Queens shortly after I was born. As he got older, my grandfather, who was also an auxiliary policeman, really got into fixing things. On the weekends, he would take me everywhere with him, to the hardware store, 
to pick some lumber for shelves, all kinds of places. He was always fixing something, and I was his little helper. He was like the busiest person in the world between his job and his work and around the house, but he was never too busy for me. If I had a question, I don't care what my grandfather was doing, he would stop and listen to me as if I were the only person in the world. He was very affectionate and never raised his voice. At night, my grandfather would sit in his favorite chair, a black leather recliner that had worn out over the years in the front room where he'd listen to jazz and eat peanuts. He always had a handful of those planter's peanuts that would flick into the air and catch with his mouth. Every night, he would have one glass of scotch and a cigar and later his pipe. You could always tell where my grandfather had been in the house because he always left the smell of that pipe and Old Spice or Brute, which he seemed to bathe in every day. I can never forget that white bottle with the blue ship on it, or the plastic green bottle. My grandfather added another side to my love for music. He was a musician, a saxophone player, was really into jazz. He loved Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, Cannonball Adderley. Some nights my grandfather would blast jazz at ridiculously loud levels in the basement. At times I thought the house would explode and come down on our heads. My grandmother would yell down the stairs, Gene, turn that shit down. My grandfather would yell back, Ah, shut up, Ellen. They go back and forth like Alice and Ralph crammed in from the honeymooners. They were hilarious. For the most part, my grandfather was calm and even-tempered. He didn't yell much. I can't even remember him getting really mad. Good thing, too, or he and my grandmother it would have never stayed married so long. He was a perfect compliment. My grandmother is a tiny woman, about 5'1", maybe smaller. But what she lacks in size, she more than makes up for in ferocity. As strong-minded and independent as she is tough, she always has been there to hold down the family. I guess you could say she's from the old school. She would cook her husband's dinner every night, clean the house. The type of woman who would set the table the night before, so when my grandfather woke up, everything would be ready and breakfast would be served. She paid attention to details, the little things he liked that made him happy. She really knew how to take care of her family and be a caring mother, especially for me. It was also my grandmother who taught me my first rhyme. If a task is once begun, never leave until it's done. Be the labor great or small, do it well or not at all. Little did she know she was preparing me for hip-hop. My grandmother was a real character back in the day, and she still is even now. When she wasn't cussing somebody out, she was in church. We went to St. Bonaventure, a Catholic church across Merrick Boulevard. She would drop me off there every other Saturday when she went to get her hair done. I had to go to church every Sunday, too. I sang in the choir. Can you picture it? I even wanted to be an altar boy. I wanted to carry the bell, light the candles and the incense, and help with communion. Communion was my favorite part of Mass. I loved those wafers. Sometimes I tried to get back in line to get another. I figured if I was an altar boy, I would have access to all the wafers I wanted. And I couldn't wait till I was old enough to get some of that wine. But by the time I became old enough to be an altar boy, I was so heavily into rap that it was a struggle for me to even go to Mass every Sunday. It's funny. I can't really relate to the Baptist, Methodist, or gospel church experience that most black people have. Catholic church is so different. Nobody really catches the Holy Ghost, and the services are very subdued. Just a lot of kneeling and praying. We did have one lady in our church, though, 
always used to catch the Holy Ghost and speak in tongues. I was maybe 10 or 11, and I thought she was absolutely out of her mind. People just didn't do that in our church. When my grandmother left me at the church on Saturday, I would get into all sorts of mischief. I used to have those priests cracking up with my antics. One time I made all the fathers some coffee, but there, there weren't any spoons, so I went around to each cup and stirred their coffee with my finger. They thought it was hilarious. After my grandmother picked me up, we would hang out all Saturday until my grandfather came home from work with the auxiliary police gig. I enjoyed the time I spent alone with my grandmother. We were like buddies. She's a great paradox. Tough on the outside and tough on the inside, but at the same time, one of the nicest people you'd ever meet. And if she likes you, she'll do anything for you. She could be your best friend and your worst enemy at the same time. I don't care what anybody thinks about my grandma. I always have her back. One time, I was maybe nine. We were on this church trip, and she got into an argument with a church sister over the food. I think they were arguing over the macaroni salad or something. The argument got heated, and before you know it, my grandmother was cursing this lady out. The lady started looking like she wanted to get physical, like they were going to fight. So I picked up a golf club and told the lady, Back up, or I'll turn this club into a wooden turban on your head. I think it cracked them up more than it scared anyone, but... That was the kind of relationship I had with my grandmother. I was her watchdog, and she was mine. Years later, when I began to rap, and people started knowing me and wanted to just drop by the house and chill, she was the one who stood at the door and told them to go away. It was hard to know who was who and focus on what I needed to do, so she became the police of the house. She was also the one who saved my mother and my grandfather the night my dad decided to start shooting at him. On that fateful evening, hardly anything was stirring outside. It was August and broiling, even at 1 a.m. My mother was working her night shift at the Northport VA Hospital, 3 p.m. to midnight. She had on a white uniform and those white shoes with thick rubber bottoms. And my father was waiting as she pulled up her brand new Monte Carlo in the driveway on the back side of the house. At this time of night, it was deserted, like a ghost town. As soon as he saw my mother's headlights coming toward the driveway, my father slipped out of the bushes and got into his car, which was parked on the other side of the house. He knew which way she'd be coming, since it was the same every night. Her routine was also the same every night. Pull up to the gate, get out of the car, open the gate, pull in, get out, close the gate, pull into the back. My father had more than enough time to get into position. He'd been trying to win her back for months. She wasn't hearing it. She was finally getting some peace in her life, putting things back together. Unfortunately, he wasn't taking no for an answer. Andrea, I'm sick of your motherfucking shit! My mother had her key in the door. When she turned around and told him to get out of her face, she had no idea he was holding a 12-gauge shotgun. The first blast caught her in the lower back. My granddad, who was in the front room doing his usual rat routine, eating peanuts and listening to jazz, came to the door when he heard the commotion and tried to close it. He took a blast to his stomach. To this day, my grandmother says she was glad my grandfather caught that second shot. If he hadn't, my mother would have taken it. It might have killed her. That's when I came running out. The smell of gunpowder was still in the air. It was stinging my nose like someone had just lit a match, only ten times stronger. My mother was laying there between the kitchen and the side door, making this horrible moaning noise. My grandfather was sitting against the wall, holding his stomach, yelling for me to get back. But my father wasn't done shooting. 
He emptied the shotgun and just sat in his car looking drained. A park by shooting. My grandmother ran outside to his car and started cursing him out. Do you believe this? She remembers that he actually apologized for shooting my grandfather. He said he was only trying to get my mother. Grandma was cursing him out and getting into action at the same time. She called the police and an ambulance and was giving out orders. I ran to get towels from the bathroom. When I pushed them into my grandfather's stomach, I could see where his flesh had been ripped apart. It was oozing out, so Grandma decided not to wait for the ambulance. To this day, I don't know how she managed it, but that little woman found the strength of ten men and got my mother and father into the backseat of the car and to Mary Immaculate Hospital. As Grandma always said, when you need the strength, he supplies it. My mother and grandfather both survived, thank God. My father fled to California where he changed his name. Police, purport, police reports were filed, but he never got prosecuted. After a while, and after she was sure he wasn't coming back, my mother decided not to pursue it either. For my sake, she told me. The way my family handled that incident, no charges pressed, that forgiveness, showed love in a way I have never seen since. The experience was rough, but it taught me that no matter how bad things are, if you can't change them, you might as well move on. Taught me that stuff happens and you have to get over it or it'll kill you. That's what I see happening a lot to a lot of young brothers and sisters today. They let their circumstances dictate their future. They allow the media and everyone else to feel sorry for them and tear them down. Both lethal blows. And they don't move forward. Brothers and sisters sit at home and blame the white man for their troubles. They say they can't get from under the thumb of oppression. I know from experience that it ain't easy to get up when you want to swallow your pity, but I also know that it's worth it. Don't wallow. My grandmother sure could have given up hope when they told her she might lose her husband and her daughter, but she didn't. She was right there fighting all the way. I can honestly say that every bad thing that's ever happened to me taught me something valuable about life, things that made me a better person. From the way my family dealt with the shooting, I learned forgiveness and gained inner strength. That lesson helped me become who I am today. Later, because of my family's forgiveness, I was also able to learn some things from my father firsthand. Some of them were even good. Once I had put this incident behind me, I thought we could have a real father-son relationship, as strange as it sounds to those of who are less forgiving. He, he even managed my career for a few years. Eventually, though, he showed himself to me just as my family saw him. This time, he almost ruined my career. More on that later. Sometimes people just are who they are, and just because someone is related to you by blood doesn't mean they will love you. It takes more than sperm to make a man a father. The most important lesson I got out of all of this, though, was that no matter how bad you think things can get, they can always get worse, and only you can make them better. For me, both happened. That incident in the kitchen at my grandparents' house was only the beginning of the rest of my childhood and the rest of my life. Hey guys, in addition to streaming Nocturnal Emotions at Earwolf.com, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Nocturnal Emotions fans have written some great iTunes reviews for the show and I really appreciate the feedback. The Hump reviewed the show saying, compelling, fun, funny, warm, personable. Thanks. Sean Rush we all trust his opinion. He wrote, I was hypnotized by Harmar Superstar in 2003. Now there's a podcast. 
Make it one of your home podcasts, which means listen every goddamn week. And if it's on Earwolf, you know it has to be good. Paraphrased, I added goddamn. Sorry, Sean. So please rate the show, leave a review, and subscribe on iTunes. And as always, thanks for listening to Nocturnal Emotions with me, the one, the spectacular Harmar Superstar. Boom! Impotent Demon. My grandfather recovered quicker than expected. He had intestinal damage, and they ended up removing about 10 feet of his intestines. In a few weeks, he was home, but he was never the same again. My mother almost died. The shotgun pellets entered her lower back and fanned out. Several grazed her spinal column, and for a while, she couldn't walk. She spent more than six months in a hospital recovery. During the first month, my grandmother took me to see her in the hospital every other day. I could only wave and smile at her through a glass partition because they didn't allow little kids in the intensive care. After three months, she was able to go from a wheelchair to a walker. From the walker, she went to a cane and then to a leg brace. At each transition, Roscoe was there. She met him a few months before the shooting at Northport VA Hospital where she worked in the pharmacy. Roscoe was an assistant to a physical therapist. After the shooting, he made it his mission in life to help my mother recover. All the doctors told her she'd never walk again, but Roscoe made her believe she could, and she did, which is a testament to her determination, another trait I inherited from her. But from that point on, he had her, he had her head. But with her gratitude, he wormed his way into her life, and my mother, feeling empty and vulnerable, just let him. She fell in love with the man she thought gave her the ability to walk again. I ain't mad at her, though, because I know how that is. If you thought someone saved your life, you might fall for them, too. Roscoe was totally different from my father. He was always joking and playing around and laughing with my mother. Roscoe was one of those pretty boys. He had hazel eyes, a curly afro, and a thick mustache. My father was big and tall with big muscles and a thick waist. Roscoe was little, about 5'7", the same height as my mother. And he wore platform shoes. I don't remember when I first laid eyes on him. It was like he was always there after my mother got out of the hospital. But I knew from the jump he didn't like me, and I was definitely not feeling him. I must have been a threat to him. Maybe because I was even smaller. He thought he could take out his frustrations on me. Maybe he just had a Napoleon complex because he was short. All he ever talked about was this cousin of his who was six feet four and 275, as if to show that somewhere in his genes was a big person. That gene definitely missed him. Maybe he was jealous of the relationship I had with my mother and her family. Maybe I was an obstacle, getting in the way of his freedom with my mother. Or maybe I was just someone easy to take out his frustrations on. Easy target. Little Napoleon's punching bag. Whatever the motivation, though, there's no real explanation for how he treated me. When my mom's got completely healthy, she started working two jobs the Suffolk County Developmental Center in Melville, Long Island, from 3.20 p.m. until 11 p.m., and the St. Albans VA Hospital from midnight to 8 a.m. She had an hour to get from Suffolk County to Queens. Some nights she had to depend on Roscoe to drop her off and pick her up because he was using her car. Some nights he was late. Sometimes he made her wait for hours. He was too busy getting high, cheating on her, and beating on me. My mother had a small brick-and-tan house built for us in North Babylon. She had to work the two jobs just to pay the mortgage and was carrying most of the weight. That left him at home with me the majority of the time, and it was on. Playtime for him. 
His idea of big fun was beating on me. Roscoe beat me for just about anything. He would beat me for watching television, for looking at him funny, for looking out the window watching other kids play. He didn't need a good reason. It was just a power trip. While my mother worked, Roscoe was home abusing her son. He was usually home when I came in from school and was like, Let the games begin! He'd make me take off all my clothes and put my arms up on my bunk bed with the Star Wars sheets while he beat me. It was like that scene in Glory when Denzel Washington was getting beat down like a slave, except I was like eight years old. He'd even pull me out of the shower to get a beating. He didn't care how he beat me or with what. He would rotate beating me with extension cords, vacuum cleaner attachments, and fists. He would punch me in the chest and knock the wind out of me and then tell me to raise up, get up for another punch. One time he threw me down a flight of stairs in our house. He even beat me for looking in the refrigerator. There's nothing, nothing worse than being hungry, staring into an empty refrigerator because your mother's man ate all the food after smoking a pound of weed and then getting a beating for being hungry. Yo, it could freak you out. It's around this time that I started wearing hats all the time. Sometimes Roscoe would snort coke. It wasn't unusual for me to come home from school and see a mirror with a bunch of white lines on it on the kitchen table. At first I didn't know what it was, but I figured out pretty quickly. I suspected he also used to deal coke on a very, very petty level. One time he even told me, Boy, go in the back room. I'll be in the kitchen cutting up this white stuff. He was always owing someone down the street, asking for an ounce on credit, an OZ on credit, some father figure. Maybe that's why I never got too into that drug thing. It was so much in my face. It was always around me growing up, and I identified drugs with pain and negativity. Pain is an understatement. One time he put me on punishment during Christmas for no particular reason. He just said, you ain't having no Christmas this year. So I put my bike, my same old Raleigh bike from back in the day, under the tree that year and pretended it was new. I washed it, though. Living with Roscoe was like, being a little kid who gets to play in the daisy field every day. But every evening, that kid has to come home and sleep in a cemetery with a dragon. It was the most horrible experience. I was defenseless, and I didn't understand. The pain went so deep. Our house was on Lakeway Drive on a nice block with lots of trees and parks and kids. Across the dead-end street were a bunch of pine trees and these dirt hills, little mounds where we used to play tag. One day after school, I was playing by myself. I was a loner for the most part when I got tired. I lay down on one of those dirt mounds and put my foot up on a tree, my hands behind my head, and just watched the clouds floating in the sky. It was one of the most peaceful moments in my life. I never got much sleep in the house. I was always on edge, never knowing if Roscoe would drag me out of bed in the middle of the night with some crazy excuse for a beating. On this particular day, I found some peace. Not for long. After I fell asleep, Roscoe started calling me. He thought I was playing games when I didn't respond. The next thing I knew, he was hauling me off the ground by my arm, and he had, had that fire in his eyes. The beating I got that day was with the vacuum cleaner hose. How did I spend my summer vacation that year? I got beatings. He put me on punishment for the entire summer, three whole months. When other kids were riding their bikes, playing kickball, and going to Disney World, I was in the house. Every day, I'd look out the window and watch the kids play. He beat me for that, too. I couldn't go outside. I couldn't even look out the window. I couldn't do anything. I just got beatings and more beatings. It was rough. Another time, one winter, I did something really bad. I asked for something to eat. 
He had just cooked himself this lumberjack meal. Steak and potatoes with gravy. The works. And I had the nerve to ask for some. Roscoe beat me and threw me outside with no coat. I had to stay there for about four hours. It was one of those winter days when the sun was out. It was bouncing off the snow, making it seem like it was even colder. Kids were working, were walking by, looking at me, shivering with no coat. I just sat on the stairs and started crying. It was so humiliating. Even worse than the beatings, though, was the mental torture. Roscoe made me his personal slave. He would make me do things like take off his shoes and funky, nasty socks at night. I, I would have to bring him juice and cake. He took advantage of the trust my mother put in him, and no one knew, but, he, no, but nobody knew about it. This went on for about four years. The more cruel the torture, the more fun it was for Roscoe. One time he was smoking weed in the living room, and I was asleep. He kept calling me, waking me up for no reason. Todd, give me something to drink. I'd get out of bed and get him something to drink and go back to bed for about ten minutes. Todd, turn off the lights in the kitchen. I'd get up and turn off the light, and I'd hear him snickering as I marched back to bed. Another ten minutes passed. Todd, come here and change the channel. I'd do it. I'd hear him laughing under his breath. He was really enjoying himself. That was one of the many ways Roscoe's had fun. The more he could be cruel, the more fun for Roscoe. The only break I got was when I went to my grandparents on the weekends. But that was like getting teased. For two days, love and fun. The rest of the week, hell and torment. It was like I was living two totally separate lives in Queens. In Queens, I was the little normal boy in a close-knit family environment, and there was plenty of food, laughter, and love. During the week, I was this crazy kid living with this crazier man whose sole purpose seemed to be to make my life a living hell. It was the tale of two Todds. I remember one weekend when I couldn't visit my grandparents' house because they were going somewhere and I wouldn't be home. Or they wouldn't be home. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I wanted to go so bad, and they knew it. They wrote me a letter telling me not to worry that I could come the following weekend, but I just sat in my room with the letter and cried. When Roscoe came by, he said, What are you crying about, punk? He read the letter. This ain't no reason to cry. The only other place I felt secure was at the McCulloughs, who lived near us in North Babylon. When I couldn't stay at my grandparents, the McCulloughs gave me some peace of mind and joy. I don't know whether they knew it or not. Mrs. McCulloch has since passed, but they really helped me maintain my sanity. They lived in a big brown and beige house at the end of our street. I first met them while coming out to see our houses. It was being built. Wow, they're big, I thought. Mr. McCullough, who was a dispatcher for the transit authority, was about 6'3", huge. Mrs. McCullough was almost six feet tall and thick. Not fat, just real healthy. They were very majestic. They were both from South Carolina, and they used to grow their own vegetables, tomatoes, okra, beans, greens, on the empty lot next to their house. But what I loved most was that their house was always filled with kids. They had two kids of their own, and at any given time, about six to eight foster kids. A family I never had. Ivan and Andy were their biological kids, and there was also Wayne, Eric, Todd, Raynard, Tracy, and Kenny. There were more before and more after, but those were the kids I grew up with. Besides the kids, the thing I remember the most about the McCullough's house was the food. There are always big pots of greens cooking on the stove, fried chicken, barbecue, and macaroni and cheese that I can taste even now. I would sometimes eat dinner over there while my mother worked. All of us kids would sit around the big wooden dining room table with these huge smiles on our faces. 
these soggy paper plates in our laps. That was the best. They gave me a lot of love, along with the chickens and greens. That house was always full of activity, too. Some kids would be in a room playing Monopoly or Uno. Others would be outside in the waiting pool, which wasn't more than three feet deep, but could sure cool you off in the summer heat. Others would be watching TV or playing football in front of the house. There was always something to do. and You know, I would do almost anything not to have to go go home to be with Roscoe. In that house, I could get lost. I could hide behind all those kids and just be another child. Not Todd the slave or Todd the whipping boy or Todd the N-word, which was Roscoe's nickname for me. Maybe the McCulloughs knew they were going on when my mother wasn't home. Maybe that's why they treated me so well. It was like they were making up for what I didn't get at home. Whatever it was that made them treat me like family, though, I loved them for it. I treated them like my real family, too. I used to fight the kids like they were my brothers and sisters. I got into a fight once with Wayne because a cat got hit in the street in front of their house and its eye was hanging out and he was laughing. I didn't think it was funny. I'm sure there'd be a lot of kids on Wayne's side, though. One time I tried to run away from home with my man Kenny. He was the same age as me. He was dark-skinned and thin, but had muscles even at a young age. Of all the foster kids at the McCulloughs, Kenny had the most problems. Although I didn't know exactly what was going on with him. Kids don't get too deep with things. I know he had a hell of a life, and I could relate. We had a connection no one else understood. He used to sit around and write rhymes together with me. We even had a little group for a hot minute. We called ourselves Solid Gold and Silver Streak. I learned one of the first rhymes hanging out with him. When you get off the wall and you bust your balls and you skibbity bop de doo I'm going to rock you up. I'm going to rock you down. I'm going to do it just for you. For those of you who don't know me, I'll be the famous rapping rapper T. <laughs> Kenny was the brother I never had, and we shared so much pain. We never really talked about it, but it was there. So one day we decided to run away. I was escaping Roscoe, of course, and I guess Kenny was escaping his past. We didn't have any real plans about where we were going or what we were going to do, but... We were going to take the train to Brooklyn where Kenny had an aunt. We would, she would take care of us until we found jobs. We were about 11 or 12, but we were dead serious. I stole about $20 out of a drawer where my mother kept her secret stash. Like we were going to get real far on that. I crawled out of the bedroom window and met Kenny on the street. We stopped off at Church's Chicken around the corner to buy a two-piece dinner with a biscuit. As soon as we walked out of Church's, this car screeched up next to us. Guess who? Roscoe. My stomach dropped. Where the hell do you think you're going, he said. I think I wet my pants. He grabbed the chicken and threw it in the garbage. I was upset about that because I was really hungry. Then he grabbed us and threw us in the car. When, he, when we got home, I already knew the routine. I took off all my clothes and stood with my hands on the railing, my bunk bed, and my glory stance. It was around this time that things started coming to a head. My mother, who had been busy working... She'd been too busy working to see what was going on and just refused to believe it. Finally started to wise up. Once or twice I tried to tell her the things he did to me, but she thought I was exaggerating. You know how kids can make things up, so eventually I just gave up. He made sure not to do any of the real brutal stuff in front of her anyway. One day, though, he got bold and beat me in front of my mother and she went bananas. She jumped on his back and scratched him up pretty good. She busted up his lip and told him never to touch me again. He was running around crying, Look what you did to my lip! Look what you did! But the man had game. 
In a few days, he had charmed himself back into her good graces, and it was on again. The, beat the beatings continued as usual. I never told any anything after that. It's a damn shame that I had to go through so much before she finally listened. I'm not mad at her, though. I understand that Roscoe had her head so wrapped up she couldn't think straight. She was still healing psychologically from the shooting. Still, the experience taught me that no matter what, you really got to listen to your kids. You have to be willing to understand where they're coming from. Now that I'm a parent myself, I don't beat my kids. I talk to them. At most, I give them a little spanking when they were young, but now that they're old enough to understand, we talk. It's important. I want my kids to have a happy childhood. I don't ever want them to go through what I went through. Eventually, my mother left Roscoe. Partly it was because of what he had been doing to me, but mostly it was because she busted him cheating on her with a white woman. He said he was only a friend because she had multiple sclerosis, but it was definitely more than friendship. So we moved back home to Queens to live with my grandparents again. You know how glad I was to have Roscoe out of my life. But the damage was done. I was doing all kinds of wild things by then, getting into all kinds of trouble. There you have it, guys. I mean, I didn't know LL Cool J had such uh, a troubled childhood. Uh, this guy, Roscoe, sounds like a real dick. And, uh, you know, his mom got shot. All this stuff by her dad, grandfather, too. Jesus Christ. LL, I'm feeling for you, but now I want to know. I can't wait to see where this goes. I can't wait till the next time I get to read you guys uh, uh, some passages to find out where the real, the real rap spirit came in when... Uh, LL Cool J was actually born, you know, when, you know, the ladies started to really love Cool James. I'm, I'm enraptured, and I hope you guys are with me on this ride, and not mad that I'm not having a conversation with someone, but I think we're all here to listen to my voice. I think that's the reason for the season. <laughs> so please, uh, please forgive me for not lining up an interview, but I thought I'd make it just as entertaining in another way that I could. This is another way to nocturnally emote, and guess what? It's my show, so I can do whatever I want. But this week, come over. If you're on the West Coast, I'm playing uh, I'm playing Seattle and Portland. Uh, I'm actually doing a show this Thursday night uh, in, in New York at the Bowery Electric. And then I go back to the West Coast and play Santa Cruz and Big Sur with the IAS. And then uh, a show in Phoenix, Tempe, I believe. So I'll be around the West Coast chilling. Hopefully I'll see, see you guys out there. Check out my website, harmarsuperstar.com. Oh, and there's a whole new slew of UK dates just being announced this week. Tickets are going on sale all over, all over the UK. I'm very excited uh, to, to get back and actually play the Bye Bye 17 songs for everyone over there. And some European festivals and all that jazz. So uh, get excited, guys. Uh, I'm going to try to trick some of the yeah, yeah, yeahs into uh, podcasting with me next week. So let's hope they are my guests for next week's episode. Not making any promises, though. You know how it gets on tour. I don't want to, like, stress anyone out with come talk to me on this computer for a while, you know. We'll just see what we get. But I'm keeping my fingers crossed for you. That's what I'm saying. Um, till then, guys, I'm going to be flying all over, beating my body up, and having the time of my life doing it harm our sleepy time bye bye i love you love each other have a good week this has been an earwolf media production executive producers jeff ulrich and scott ackerman for more information visit earwolf.com
EarwolfRadio.com The Wolf Dead.